Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone and welcome to uh, Lo-Fi Kitchen for Luke 16. Um, Luke 16 was a really challenging uh chapter for me. Um, but I walk away with a number of things to kind of think about and mull over it. So um, Lo-Fi Kitchen, if if this is your first time listening, it's kind of the, the I try not to give too many of my own personal interpretations in the, in the Luke, in the regular episodes, um, because I don't want to color the story too much from my own point of view for you. Um, although that's impossible to not do. Um, but we try and let the story tell itself as much as possible. Um, but then, you know, because it's kind of fun and because these stories often bring up, um, challenging or deep thoughts, deep thoughts by Kevin Lester, um, uh, for us, I like doing these kitchen episodes where, where we kind of do get, get the chance to have a different conversation. So I'll share my thoughts. If you have thoughts on Luke 16, I would love to hear them. That's why I always invite you guys to connect with me on like Facebook or by email or something like that. Um, cause I want to know what you get from it. Cause what I get from it is probably very different. Um, and I want to learn from you, but here's my thoughts on it. If we were hanging out, um, the reason we call them kitchen episodes again is that, um, if you think about the levels of conversations that we have, um, kind of, uh, living room conversations are like anyone is kind of invited to come over and, and hang out and, and we'll eat pizza together or something like that and, and chat about things or something like that. But, um, afterwards, um, you know, maybe, uh, after the party's over, you know, some people stick around. Have you ever had a party where people stick around and help you clean dishes and stuff like that? And, and maybe you'll start to dig a little bit deeper and share a little bit more closer things to your heart. You're a little bit more personal, um, in the kitchen. Um, and so this is kind of that conversation. So, um, a couple things that I, I find interesting in Luke 16. Um, I always walk away with as Jesus is constantly arguing with these Pharisees or the religious leaders or, um, whatever, or, or, or just wealthy people or, um, or even, you know, awful people who are like standing in his way and trying to stop him. Um, cause this will continue on and it'll actually only get worse as the book goes on. Um, Jesus never gives up hope for them. And, uh, for those of us who might believe that Jesus being the son of God kind of is God, then we have to kind of be challenged by what do we make of a God? We never gives up hope for his enemies to the point where he never actually seeks to to punish or strike out in vindictiveness against them or hurt them. Hey, someone's coming in. Hey, Elizabeth, how's it going? How you doing? I am recording. I'm doing a kitchen episode for 16. Do you want Do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Oh, here, let me turn the microphone. You got to yell. Hi, everyone. Elizabeth Sims just walked in, one of my favorite people, and she has a box of generic Cheerios. Nice. So I'm, I'm, I'm using her, her room as my recording studio here at work. So I'm totally pirating her space. So, um, so thank you. <laughs> How long do I need? I'm going to push pause real quick. Hold on. Okay. We're back. I'm now, I've now moved two different rooms to try and find a place to record. Um, so yeah, Elizabeth needed her her youth room at the church. So I'm now in the in the closet of the of the we call it the prayer room. Um, so yeah, um, where the first episodes of Lo-Fi Lectionary were recorded. So I'm returning back to form. But um, yeah, um, 
Jesus uh, never gives up hope for his enemies. He's always trying to win them over, which I just think is really cool. Um, and I, I started to think about that, and I was like, well, how does how does Jesus accomplish that? And as as we look through the 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 story, at least in Luke, it seems like Jesus is a third way thinker. Um, and I know there's different. I've heard the the phrase third way used a couple different ways. The way I'm going to use it here is that Jesus steps into situations where there's two opposing sides. And instead of choosing one side over the other, Jesus says there's a third way that kind of incorporates or reconciles both sides. Um, I think that's why Jesus uses stories a lot to kind of disarm both sides. Um, I think that's why Jesus uses surprising stories a lot because he can kind of wake people up to new possibilities. And so his message, you know, in, in 16 kind of goes along those lines. It's not like, okay, these people are right. And if you want to be right, you need to be like them. Kind of like his teachings often aren't so cut and dry. The impetus is always on reconciling people to each other. So those three parables at the end of in Luke 15 are always about reconciling communities to themselves. Um, and so his message to the Pharisees, you know, it says, oh, the Pharisees, you know, ridiculed him because they were lovers of money. You know what I mean? Is it his response to him isn't don't be a Pharisee. It's be a be a heck of good Pharisee. There's my Northern California language stepping in. Like, be the best Pharisee you can be. And you realize that in what you have, you you have knowledge and you have wisdom and you have leisure time to, to figure out a new way forward. You should be doing that to help and to serve others and not help and serve either yourself or help and serve only your small group. But you should be using that for everybody. You know, Jesus's message to the rich and the powerful, he does draw a pretty clear line about God and wealth and stuff like that. But the response isn't, okay, don't be rich. Don't have land. Don't hire people. Don't do stuff like that. It's, oh my gosh, if you want to be healthy, if you want to be on God's side, if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to realize the responsibility that God believes that you have, what you should be doing is giving away as much of this as you can and being good to people. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, I mean, in the end, Jesus isn't trying to tell people to move from just one side or one position, one camp, one tribe to the other, but to live in a way where everyone le- learns to love and to serve people beyond their group. And if we think about that, then we look at the the parable about the rich man and Lazarus, um, the big problem for the rich man is that he doesn't see Lazarus as his, um, as a responsibility that he, as someone that he has a direct responsibility to, that he cannot ignore. Um, Lazarus is just out with the dogs instead. And that kind of reminded me of another story as I thought about it over the last few weeks. Um, in the book of Genesis, um, we get a series of stories. First, first two stories are God creating the world two different ways, which is kind of fun. And then we get... Um, some stories about Adam and Eve, you know, the first two prototypical humans. And then we get a story about their two children, their two boys, Cain and Abel. And these stories, like these characters, um, whether you believe they are real or not, are being told where the stories we get are, are that they're being archetypes, you know, and prototypes for all people. So we're kind of supposed to read these stories and see human nature at its core in some ways. Um, and so these first two characters, Cain and Abel, like they come after the Adam and Eve getting kind of kicked out of the garden story. So they're kind of, if you think about it, Cain and Abel are the first two human characters who um, 
in the book of the Bible, at least, have to live in the world as we, like the rest of us, have to experience it, like outside of the garden, if that makes sense. Like, they're the first two human beings that come up post-creation and post-curse, you know. Um, And so, long story short, um, Cain gets really jealous of Abel, and Cain kills Abel. And God goes to goes to Cain and is like, oh, like, you know, where is your brother? Like he kind of plays this little game with him. And Cain's response is he asks a question, am I my brother's keeper? And I might have talked about this on the podcast before, but um, about 10 years ago, I read that story and I asked myself kind of an interesting question of what if, okay, if these stories are characters that are archetypes for us, if we're supposed to find something about like the human condition that we are all experience with these two characters, what if the rest of the Bible, and in a sense, from a certain point of view, what if the rest of the human narrative of the cosmos is people trying to correctly answer this question, am I my brother's keeper? What if the rest, like the narrative is then, okay, people have to live outside of some sort of paradise, outside of the garden, you know, they have to struggle with pain and death and suffering and stuff like that. And the first question that gets posed is, am I my brother's keeper? And so God, the way that God responds in that story to Cain's question is, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God's like indirect answer is yes. (laughs) Like, yes, you are your brother's keeper. At least I think that you should be. The way the world is supposed to work is that yes, you are your brother's keeper. And so it's, you could actually, an interesting way to read the Bible would be to read the rest of the Bible as how are people responding to God's call that yes, you are your brother's keeper. Everyone else you see Men, women, children, poor, rich, hurting, healthy. They are all, you're you're a keeper for all of them. And so the question then that we have to struggle with, if, if we're challenged by that, is how do we live right, living with this kind of, the way I phrased it in my notes was burden of responsibility, but this invitation to responsibility, to put it more positively, that we are all invited to be responsible for each other. And how do we do that? How do we live that right? How do we do that correctly? Um, and if you look at then the rest of the Bible, like you look, read all these laws in the Old Testament, and a lot of them, maybe I would dare to say most of them, are all about how God wants people to treat and act towards each other, not how they're directly acting towards him. Like there's not a ton of rules about worship or prayer and how to do that correctly or right. There's a lot of rules about how you behave with other people and how you grow crops in behavior towards other people and how you be generous towards other people or how you run a society in behavior towards other people or what you do with your hands to have good hands and good feet, as we say with little children, towards other people. Like That's what most of the laws are concerned with. Like God in the Bible seems to have this idea that we can't be right, we can't be properly connected or aligned or in touch or in tune with God, with the rest of the universe, without being right towards each other. 
And in a world where culture and wealth and politics and religion often lead people to creating a kind of tribalism where we shut off and disconnect from each other, where we try and then treat our own, by whatever criteria that means, better than the others, God is constantly trying to get people to cross those boundaries, to break them down and show favor and compassion towards others. And that's what we kind of see Jesus doing here in Luke 16. Um, and that's what I think we see God trying to do from the beginning with Cain and Abel. Um, here's what's also really interesting. In that Cain story, after Abel dies, and after God confronts him about killing Abel, Cain then pleads to God, you know, I'm I'm going to be in danger. Like, everyone's going to come after me. So apparently already there's other human beings around. Um, and God says, okay, like he hears it. And then he places a mark on Cain to protect him. So when people see it, they will know that he is under God's protection. So even with the murderer, God is trying to protect Cain from fellow human beings. God is trying to preserve him in connection with human beings. God is actually trying to reconcile Cain to the rest of the human community, even after the murder. So in this one story with Cain and Abel, God is a character who calls for justice. Your brother's blood cries out. And yet God also cries out for reconciliation and protection of the perpetrators. As Eddie Izzard once said, that's no way to start a religion. I mean, because how do we live with that, with those dual calls for both justice and yet protection? And we see Jesus here living out a call for justice to the Pharisees, towards the wealthy, towards the powerful who come and try and oppose him, but also calling out for protection and reconciliation between them and the people that are their victims. Um, God is just real, as relentless in his desire that people take responsibility to take care of each other, even if it means protecting murderers and cheaters and disreputable people. And so in Luke 16, we get one of the few stories where Jesus talks about judgment in the afterlife, where there's a hell picture and a heaven picture and some scary things and stuff like that. And some things I want us to remember that it, it is an analogy, it's a parable, so we need to be careful about choosing which part of the story we take as literal or as being what actually goes down and stuff like that. Like, I think it would be the wrong step to say, okay, here's what is actually going to happen when we all die one day, like based on Luke 16 alone, you know, or something like that. Um, because that gets kind of tricky, but at the same time, we need to take seriously that Jesus is here presenting a picture of the afterlife of judgment and of consequences and of the way that God is going to put forward the kingdom and who gets in and who gets out and stuff like that. In this story, at least we're challenged by the idea that the reason that one person goes to Hades to be in torment after death. Um, is because he made hell for vulnerable people when he was living on earth. Um, this rich guy, this unnamed rich man, was powerful enough that he was able to create the world that he wanted, where he could wear purple and feast sumptuously every day. He had the resources to make the world a heaven for himself. Um... But in order to do so, his world required others to experience hell and agony and torment. 
Those are the choices the rich man made. In choosing to live a certain way, he therefore chose not to share, not to alleviate, not to care, to leave this man at the gates. And so in choosing to create his own heaven, to create his own kingdom, he created a hell for, for Lazarus. And even, that's why the point is so pointed and painful. And that, I mean, you could stop the story there and Jesus could teach a very important, deep, challenging lesson. But then there's this dialogue between the rich man and Abraham in which this rich man actually tries to pull Lazarus into hell with him. And so there's a certain sense. Um, I mean, the rich man does cry out to, to escape the place of torment at first, but he's still getting what he wants. He's getting the world he created. In his life before death, he created a world where some people experience agony and some people experience great pleasure and comfort. And in the end... He's getting what he wants, but he just happens to be on the other side of it. The call, going back to this Cain and Abel story, and the call in this story about the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus presents us with, is that when we choose not to be our brother's keeper, I wonder if then we are making the choice to create hell for people on earth and to choose and allow hell to happen. That's really, that haunts me in a way that I hope is, leads me towards something productive and something good, some sort of renewed hope, some sort of renewed care and compassion and action, um, some sort of good repentance on my part, um, as opposed to some sort of fear of trying to stay out of hell, you know? Um, and so it seems like, I wonder where Jesus comes from with this. And maybe it's because Jesus knows that some people live hellish lives on this earth, that he's fighting so hard to show favor on everybody because in doing so he can help some people personally not live such hellish lives. He can go and he can show favor and care and healing and restore those people. But he's also inviting other people who have resources, who have tools, who have wealth, who have power, who have other things. He's trying to win them over so they can join him in doing the good work of showing goodness in favor of God and literally saving people from a hellish torment and agony as much as they can. In Luke 16, we get a picture of God as being one who is relentless in going after people who would make themselves his enemies because he is also relentlessly going after people who are in agony. And what's interesting for me, especially as an, as a, as an American and as someone who grew up in the evangelical church, that Jesus here isn't really interested in helping individual souls do the right things just so they can check the boxes and get into heaven. He's building a community of people here that will hopefully experience the goodness of God's favor of the heaven of kingdom of God now. And then therefore will find themselves in the kingdom of God later. Like the impetus of Jesus' stories aren't save yourselves from hell. 
The emphasis of Jesus' stories are the kingdom of God is close. The kingdom of God, you can find it now. And if you find it now, if you join it now, you will not be surprised to find yourself in it later. But if you refuse it now, you maybe won't be surprised to find yourself refusing it and outside of it later. And that's very different because, again, this parable doesn't start with um, the rich man uh, was also an unbeliever and then was also very mean towards poor people, you know, and Lazarus was, was a good, faithful person who believed in all the right theological things and yet was very poor. And that's why he went to heaven. You know what I mean? So many things that uh, us religious people often make as the focus for our criteria of how we think God will treat people either now or in the future um, are kind of thrown out in this one parable. Um, and a different paradigm, a different criteria is kind of set up. And I think we need to be challenged, to allow ourselves to be challenged by that. I mean, um, growing up, where I've grown up and stuff like that, it's not like my family was super well off or something like that, but we have enjoyed a lot of comforts that a lot of people in this world don't have and don't get. And... I have to figure out daily what, what to do about that. Um, and so when I get to this, to these teachings of Jesus, I have to figure out how am I not living, worshiping wealth or serving a God of wealth or serving wealth as a God? How am I actually serving the God that I have or the God that is, or the God that I find that Jesus believes in? If I believe in the same God that Jesus believes in, then I can't really get away with focusing on living for my own comfort and ease and pleasure and ignoring the agony of the people who are lying at the gates. And yet it's, it's easy to become stymied for me to be stuck because the problems that people have, the problems of people that live very hellish lives around me, they seem so big and they seem so hard to do something about. And it seems like I barely have the resources to take care of myself and my family. How can I solve in a meaningful way theirs? Um, I still don't know what to do with that, but I want to at least continue to live with the challenge that, that Luke 16 gives us of if there is something that I can do, I hope that I find it within myself to, to do it. And that's why I think... Um, I mean, I know politics and religion are, are something dangerous to mix because it's gone the wrong way so many times. But Luke 16 challenges what we often think of when we think of religion getting mixed with politics because it's usually a power grab or a wealth grab, which is connected to power grabs or something like that. And if you're part of a religious community, whatever they want to call themselves, <laughs> um, but if you're part of a religious community where they aren't taking on the challenge that Jesus gives us in Luke 16 of we need to sometimes stand against um, wealth and power and those that have it and challenge them uh, to consider the world that they're creating um, and accept that challenge ourselves, but also speak out prophetically against others who may be using their power and wealth to create a hell on earth. Then if you're part of a community that isn't taking that challenge seriously, you might want to be the part of the voice that challenges that community of whether they're following Jesus 
if they proclaim to or not. Because there are actually a lot of communities that, that claim to be followers of Jesus and yet worship power and wealth and money and see it signs as God's favor on them and not signs that God is giving them a responsibility to care for others. And the truth is, is that even though the parable presents it as a, as a story between two individual people, a rich man and one poorer man of Lazarus, the problems of poverty are so big that it requires a community response. And therefore, a faithful to Jesus response to poverty and suffering and the hellish lives that people live looks like politics because it has to be a community response. Does that make sense? And so the challenge that I felt is I grew up with a faith where it's like, well, keep your politics to yourself and we'll keep the religion for the community. You know what I mean? And even, and even, and even beyond that, we actually saw our religion as something very personal. You need to have a personal faith in Jesus. So a lot of it is just between me and Jesus, you know, and stuff like that. And as I've grown older, I've realized when you read these stories, it's a story about a community. We talked about that in the main episode of the rich man is the figurehead for a community. And so it's not just about him. It's about what this community has done to either allow people like this rich man to live the way they do and to allow people like this poor man to live the way that they do. And so it's really a community indictment not so much a personal indictment that the Lazarus goes unburied should have been a responsibility of the community. And so it was a community problem that he was sitting at those gates every day. And it's a community problem that he died the way he did. And he's invited then into a heavenly community of the kingdom of God. Um, and whereas the rich man is the one who's constantly trying to break the community responsibility. He, that's why it's such a big deal that he calls Lazarus down into hell because it's all about him and it's not about the connection they have. Um, and so, um, I mean, we live, we're living in a time right now where new voices are coming up about how we address our responsibility to each other as a community. It's coming up within church circles it's coming up within our political circles. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, but it, come, it means that we have to ask ourselves as individuals and as communities a lot of really challenging questions. And I hope that in lo-fi lectionary, that it's a group of us together kind of looking back at the Bible story and throwing off some of our presumptions about what it says. And when we read it as a story, we actually find very powerful challenges and messages of encouragement and inspiration for us continuing the work of asking ourselves, what are we doing and what kind of a world are we living in and what kind of a world can we create? And I think that you can find really interesting answers to that in the Jesus story, even if you don't buy into the same theological beliefs that Luke does or that I do or that religious communities that follow Jesus do. I hope that you, if you are non-religious, you can listen to the story and be like, yeah, there's truth in that, in that the best way forward is to create a life that we experience together that looks more 
like heaven or a heaven than like hell. Or where, or where certain people aren't allowed to live like hell so the rest of us can live like our version of heaven. And I pray that we would think about that, that we would talk about that, and that that would change both our personal actions as well as the actions of our communities in the way that we write policy, in the way that we vote, in the way that we care for each other and build communities as safe places for people who might be living a hellish life. My hope for us is that we would all continue to not get stagnant, but to be challenged every day by the call to be the keepers of our brothers and sisters and to not leave anyone lying at the gates. Thank you for listening. Um, Yeah, that's kind of all I have to say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a great day um, and enjoy. Amen. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, The more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, You can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and and keep things going on there. Uh, Just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, That's kind of it. So thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.